take your a copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, and uh, today's message is uh, the flip side of the coin uh, of, of the marriage relationship. So last week we looked at uh, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, where Peter addresses wives. And so six verses of instruction, exhortation, encouragement uh, to Christian wives, uh, and with the chief command being, be subject to your own husbands. That's chapter 3, verse 1, and then he sort of unfolds um, something of, of the, the wife's side of the leadership and submission uh, principle and the shape of a marriage relationship as God designed and intends. Uh, speaking of, of true beauty being not merely external, but being uh, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, right? Let your, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, was Peter's exhortation to wives. Uh, and today... In verse 7, he now goes to the other side of the room, if you will, and speaks to husbands. And they only get one verse. You might think that's not fair, right? How come wives have six verses that they have to obey and husbands only have one verse that they have to obey? Uh, but don't be fooled uh, by the lengthiness or the wordiness of it uh, or the lack thereof. Um, sense the weight of the words that, uh, that the Spirit brings to the church uh, through the Apostle Peter. Let me read for you uh, verse 7 in its entirety, uh, and then we'll um, continue. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so if you back up and get a context of marriage, of the picture of what God intends for husbands and wives to be and how they ought to live, you see the principle spelled out very plainly by Paul in Ephesians 5.23. The husband is the head of the wife. That's not aspirational. It doesn't say the husband will one day graduate into headship. No, this is God-given authority. This is your divine assignment if you're a husband. When you said, I do, you stepped into a role of God-ordained headship and leadership in your marriage and in your home. This is heavy stuff. This is weighty. Husbands should feel the weight of this responsibility with a certain sense of who is sufficient for these things. This, this is the role that God has given, entrusted, assigned to Christian husbands to be the head of their households, to be the leader in their marriage. And that is the basis for Peter's exhortation to wives in 3.1. Be subject to your own husbands because it's playing into or it's a part of this broader picture of the marriage relationship and the headship or leadership and submission uh, shape of that relationship. And so he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, even if some do not obey the word. So even if a Christian wife is married to an unchristian husband, one who does not believe the gospel, she is nevertheless, out of her love for God, her reverence for him, to live in, uh, in, in glad submission to the leadership of her husband. And so now the task of the Christian husband 
is to grow into the mantle that God has placed upon him by virtue of the marriage covenant with his wife. And so we ask, naturally, what does leadership look like? How should a husband's God-given authority take shape in the husband and wife relationship? What does God expect of Christian husbands in the way they live with their wives and carry out the various tasks and responsibilities that God has placed into their lives? I'm glad you asked all these questions because that is what Peter intends for us to get a picture of today in verse 7. I'm going to read it one more time. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I'm going to make two big points here, and we'll unpack those together. A husband should honor his wife's weakness, and a husband should honor his wife's glory. Let's take those one at a time. A husband should honor his wife's weakness. Actually, before I do that, let me, let me just talk about those two things. I think we see both of those clearly displayed in this text. And, and the weakness of the wife, and, I, and here he actually says woman. He uses that broader term where he says honoring the woman as the weaker vessel. So this, is, this applies to women generally, right? The, the, a woman's weakness and a woman's glory are something of a counterbalance to one another. So if one is inclined to emphasize the weakness of a woman too much and are thereby maybe tempted to uh, take advantage of her or to demean her in some way um, because she's just a woman, right? Uh, then her glory as an heir of the universe would pull us in the other direction and say, hold on, there's weakness, but don't forget the glory. And on the other hand, if we emphasize the glory of the woman too much and are tempted to, to minimize or erase the distinctness of a woman from a man, and those differences, or elevating her importance and capacity even above uh, that of men, then her comparative weakness will pull us back in the other direction, right? And say, yes, there's glory and radiance and beauty in, uh, the, in a woman as God has created her. But there is a difference and, and there is weakness there that God intends for us to see and to honor so that's the chief sort of instruction to husbands and how they relate to their wives. It's the word honor. So the, the sort of flow of this verse, uh, the, or the logic of it, is basically this. Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way. And we ask, how? In what manner does that look like? So he tells us, by showing honor to her. On what basis? Why uh, would we show honor? What understanding or knowledge fuels or inspires a husband to show honor to his wife? And he gives us two reasons. As the weaker vessel and as heirs with you of the grace of life, right? She's the weaker vessel and she's an heir of the grace of life. And then the last statement is sort of a, uh, what might happen to the spiritual life of a husband who fails or refuses to show such honor to his wife. And that's that last phrase, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, there will be spiritual damage in your own life if you will not heed these instructions. And so that's sort of the way that the passage moves along. Let's uh, look at it in some more detail. 
Live with your wives in an understanding way. I take this phrase to be something of an umbrella for the truth of the rest of this verse. Uh, if you were to sort of package up all of the teaching in verse 7 about honoring the wife uh, for her weakness and honoring the wife for her glory and the warning at the end about your prayers being hindered and put that all into a bag, you could call that bag living in an understanding way. I think that's kind of what Peter does here. He gives this umbrella term, live with your wives in an understanding way, and then he unpacks what that means. What it means is showing honor, right? And so that, that's uh, kind of how he's doing it. The, the phrase there that's translated uh, in an understanding way is literally according to knowledge. Live according to knowledge with your wives. And so the question is, well, what knowledge does that mean exactly? What knowledge does he have in mind? I think that the knowledge and understanding that he has in mind here is an awareness of the situation that your wife is in, which he expounded for us in verses 1 through 6, right? She's the, the less powerful, the less privileged in the relationship uh, as the husband is the head and the wife is to submit. And so there, that's, a, that's a part of what shapes our understanding, the knowledge of our wives is that they are in, by God's design, by God's good design, the, 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 the place of vulnerability. And so I think that's a part of the knowledge that he wants us to have of who God has created her to be and the role in her life that God has assigned to you, husbands, right? This is a part of what it means to live with knowledge with our wives. It means know who God has designed you to be and how he's intending you and calling you to lead. Um, and then he unpacks according to knowledge uh, in the remainder of this verse, especially in the very next phrase, showing honor to the woman. And so the main shape that knowledge or understanding is to take in a marriage is for a husband to show honor to his wife. And I think that is uh, an art that is largely missing. Uh, in our culture broadly, for sure. Uh, and even in the church and in Christian marriages that I have observed a tendency uh, to, to dishonor for, for men, for husbands to dishonor their wives and maybe for men more broadly to dishonor women. And so let's talk through this a little bit. He intends for husbands to honor their wives in two main ways. Number one, honor her weakness. Honor her weakness. You see that phrase there, the second phrase of the verse, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now let's talk about what weakness doesn't mean in this context before we really unpack what it means. When, it, when Peter says that the woman is weaker, he does not mean she is less intelligent or that she is less gifted or that she is less godly. He cannot here be speaking of intellectual weakness or moral weakness or spiritual weakness because otherwise women throughout the scriptures uh, would, would be seen as less than men. And in fact, it doesn't even bear itself out historically because very often in historical settings, uh, past and present, women are often more spiritually attuned than men in a community, in a church, even in a family 
sometimes, right? And so it, he is not speaking here of intellectual weakness, moral weakness, spiritual weakness, right? This is not a demeaning sense of a woman is weaker, which means that she's worthless or uh, somehow less valuable to God or has a less important job to do. That is not what he means when he says that she is weaker. And we could sort of further illustrate that by just asking this question, does weaker always mean worse? That's how we hear that, I think. I think sometimes people read, honor the woman as the weaker vessel, and there's pushback, there's bristling, because we think weaker means worse. A crystal vase is more breakable than a stainless steel tumbler. But does that mean that the crystal is less valuable, less beautiful, less cherished? I'd actually argue quite the opposite. Yes, the crystal must be treated with care, but we don't look down on it for that reason. And in fact, we're all the more vigilant to keep it intact and to keep it free from smudges and fingerprints precisely because we find it beautiful and precious. Something of its value and its beauty is found in its delicateness, in its uh, breakableness, if you will, in its weakness in this sense. So weakness does not mean worse. All right, I want you to, to, to have that clearly in your mind as we walk through what this weakness does mean. It doesn't mean less mature, less intelligent, less godly, less gifted, worse. It's not what he means. Husbands are to show honor to their wives as the weaker vessel. And I think there's two ways that women could be seen as weaker comparatively to men. One of those, I think, uh, just within the immediate context of 1 Peter, it has to do with her social standing, socially speaking, and especially in Peter's day. Right? There's been some changes uh, in, over time and in our own day, and this isn't exactly relevant in the same way, although it's still, it's still true, broadly speaking. But socially, as we observed last week, Peter is especially concerned to provide counsel and encouragement to the disadvantaged party in uh, each of the, the various social and relational pairings that he addresses. Right, He speaks to Christians as they relate to their government. Obviously, the Christians are the less privileged and the more vulnerable there. He speaks to slaves as they relate to their masters, slaves being the more vulnerable in that pairing. And then he, again, in verses one through six, speaks at some length to wives in relation to being subject to their husbands. They are socially disadvantaged. And even in God's design in the headship and submission in a marriage, the, the, the party that is called to submit to the leadership of the other is, by definition, in a more vulnerable place. And so I think part of the, the weakness that he wants us to see uh, is surely the social disadvantage that she has in terms of material provision and self-preservation, right? Again, thinking back to, to, to the first century, uh, it would have been uh, virtually impossible for a woman in that society to have uh, sort of made her own way, right? That's something that we're familiar with in 21st century America that would not, there, are, there weren't career women in first century uh, Roman Empire, right? And so there is a, a social disadvantage there. But I think that what Peter has in view even more than that uh, is really actually the plainest sense of this reading is that the woman is weaker physically. 
The woman is physically weaker. That's a more natural sense of the word that he uses, the word vessel there, that the woman as the weaker vessel. Vessel is used elsewhere in the New Testament to speak of our bodies. Where Paul t- speaks about us having uh, these uh, treasures in, in, in vessels of clay, the treasure being the spirit of God living in us, the vessels being our fleshly, earthly bodies, right? And so vessel can mean body. And I think that's probably the more natural reading here. So when he says that the woman is the weaker vessel, I think he is emphasizing the physical weakness of a woman comparatively to a man, generally speaking. In other words, a husband should treat his wife with honor because she is at a physical disadvantage in terms of strength and weakness. Now, I say that that is generally true because, of course, some women are stronger than some men, right? Ronda Rousey could whip my tail, all right? There's no question about that. There are women who are really strong and there are men who are cream puffs and could not possibly fight back, right? If they found themselves in a fight with a strong woman, they would have no hope, right? So there are certainly some women who are physically stronger than some men. But on the whole, I think this is natural to us. It is kind of intuitively obvious to us that men generally are physically stronger and sturdier and bulkier than women are. One really obvious arena where this uh, truth, this physical differentiation is evident is in the world of sports. There are virtually no sports, and if you think about the Olympics or you think about professional sports like basketball or whatever, there are virtually no sports where women and men are competing together with one another. There's a division between men's sports, men's athletics, and women's athletics on the whole for a simple reason. Men would dominate in virtually every category. That is a universally recognized truth, and it's why even today we still divide sports into genders. There's men's sports and women's sports. And in fact, some of the confusion in our culture over transgenderism uh, is seen to be folly when it comes to the world of sports. Because you'll have a transgender woman who's biologically a man now competing against women, and guess what? They win every time. And it's not seen as fair because there's a physical advantage that the biological male has over the biological women in the sport. And this is, uh, this is obvious to us. It's intuitive to us that men are generally sturdier, stronger than women are. Men have a genetic advantage in terms of strength. And this disparity between the strength, the relative strength of a man and the relative weakness of a woman is by God's design. God made us this way. It's not evolution. It's not accidental that men just sort of became stronger than women did. God designed men and women in this way. And I think we need to ask ourselves why. Why did God design men to be stronger than women? And I think the answer is because God intends men to use their strength to bless and protect women. That's what God intends for men to do, the role that he intends for men to play. There's an honor 
that a man shows a woman by protecting, by uh, stepping forward and using his strength for her good. In my house, for example, my boys know there is a difference in seriousness and consequence between their disrespect to me and their disrespect to their mother. I've said to my boys on more than one occasion, it is inappropriate for you to raise your voice in anger to me. But if you raise your voice in anger to your mother, there, you are on dangerous ground. There is, a, there is a difference there because men are intended by God's design to use their strength to bless and to protect and to serve women. And we want to train up our young men in those ways. Men are to carefully steward their strength and, and aggressiveness and energy for the benefit and honoring of women, and particularly of husbands to their wives. Incidentally, I think this is one of the reasons that, uh, that man-to-woman violence, whether it's sexual abuse, physical, uh, psychological abuse, is so dreadfully terrible. And incurs such strong condemnation from God. And even from our flawed human justice systems, we recognize there is a big problem when a man harms a woman. He has, it's where he has taken the privilege of strength given him by God and turned it into a weapon for the damage and destruction of the weaker vessel whom God had assigned him to protect. It is a fearful thing to take a gift God has given for the purpose of blessing and protecting others and using it instead as an instrument of destruction and violence. We should heed that warning very carefully and we should uh, make darn sure that we are not crossing lines of impropriety and of violence and harm to the women that God has entrusted us to protect and to bless with our strength. So how does a woman honor his wife as the weaker vessel? I think part of it is just this understanding. It's recognizing God has made me stronger than my wife and he intends for me to utilize that strength for her good, for her benefit. I think it looks like gentleness and tenderness and all those things that our culture doesn't tend to think of as manly. You know, when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, I, can't, I tried hard to find out who said this. There's a quote uh, that came to my mind, and I can't track down where it began. I see the quote all over the place, but nobody ever attributes it. So I don't know who said it. But it's this. Maybe you can help me uh, with this and chime in in the comments. It says this, meekness is not the same as weakness. Meekness is strength under control. And I think there's something beautiful and very godly about a man who has his strength intact and is aware of it, but is under the control of the Holy Spirit and has that strength in check and uses his strength for good for those he is called to protect and provide for. I think a husband honors the weakness of his wife by providing and, and by caring for her in these different ways. So, honor her weakness. Recognize the strength that God has given you as a husband, if that is your role, and use that strength 
for the good of your wife. And I think that there is a broader application here too for men generally. Men, use your strength to bless and serve and protect women. We ought to regard all women as created by God in his image. And if they're believers in Jesus, they're even daughters of God by faith. And so we ought to have our eye out for them to guard and protect and to bless them. Honor her weakness. The second way that husbands are to honor their wives is to honor their glory. Honor their glory. I see this in that third phrase in the verse. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. They are heirs with you of the grace of life. What does it mean to be an heir? It means you have an inheritance coming, right? It means you are in line to receive the benefits and the possessions of your parents, right? So when it says that the woman is, a, is an heir, your wives are heirs with you of the grace of life. I think he has in mind here that great inheritance that he spoke about at length in chapter 1. Let me remind you, chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through 5. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Wives, women who trust Christ, will receive the very same inheritance as their husbands or as men who have trusted in Christ, right? There is not a distinction to be made between men and women in terms of the inheritance that is ours in Christ. I think that's what Paul means in Galatians 3.28 where he says that there is no male or female for all are one in Christ. I don't think he means that all of the distinctness between men and women is obliterated and we should disregard all of the, the, the roles and assignments that men and women are given because then Paul himself gives such assignments and that wouldn't make any sense. I think what he's saying is when it comes to a person's standing before God, and the inheritance of eternal life and salvation that is coming for those who trust in Christ and wait expectantly for him, women are joint heirs with men. We are on the same level field before Almighty God and receiving the very same fullness of the inheritance that he has for us. Down in chapter 1, verse 6, he says that the faith that has been tested by fire would result, would be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, our wives and all Christian women will be recipients of this honor and glory and praise from Christ that's what he means there. When it will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ, he means there will be honor for you. There will be honor given, bestowed upon you for faithfully enduring through the trials of this life for the sake of Christ and his glory. And our wives and Christian women will be the recipients of that very same inheritance. Christian women are heirs of the universe. They're future rulers, co-rulers with men and with Christ 
in the new heavens and the new earth. To paraphrase John Piper, he says something like, Husbands, when you go to bed each night, you are lying down next to a future queen of the universe. Bear that in your mind. Honor your wife for her glory. There is more there and more in store for her than you could possibly imagine. Keep that in mind in the way that you speak of and think of and treat her. Think about it this way. Christian women are daughters of creator God. Daughters of God. And so the instructions that God gives to husbands here, honor your wives. He's not just saying honor that woman who lives with you. He's saying she's my daughter, right? You might imagine perhaps you have a daughter and and there's a suitor that's coming and maybe they've been seeing each other for a while and the young man is interested in, in marrying the daughter, and so he comes to the father, intending to ask, right, for, could I have the hand of your daughter in marriage? What might that father say to this suitor? I imagine myself in that role someday, and I might have a few things to say, but one of the things I'm sure to say is this, you'd better take good care of her. This is essentially what God is doing when he's calling Christian husbands to honor their wives. He's saying, she's mine. She is my daughter, and I'm entrusting her to your leadership, to your protection, to your provision, and you'd better treat her well. You'd better take good care of her. Why? Is it because she's frail and easily breakable and she can't be trusted with uh, important work? No, it's because she's precious to him. She is my daughter. I love her, and I'm entrusting her to you. Take good care of her. So what does it mean? How do you show honor to your wife for her glory? What does that mean? I want you to imagine that you go to an art show. I don't know if there's any like art aficionados or art lovers in the crowd here, but um, go, you go to an art show, and you find a painting that just captures your imagination. It's beautiful. It's exquisite. It's, you can't stop looking at it. And you think, I must have this painting. And you look at the price and it's pretty high. But there's something about this painting. You just have to have it. And so you, you shell out all of this money to take this painting because you have to have it to look at it all the time and to, to bring it home. But then imagine as you're taking it out of that, uh, that art exhibit and, and bring it to your car that, that you just toss it in the backseat of your car. You can't pay attention to whether it's bent or, or bumping into something else. And then you get home and you drag it out of the car and, and you just drag it along the floor. The edges of it are scraping and getting all, uh, all messed up as you're going in. And, and you bring it into the house and you go, I don't know where to put this. I'll just, I'll just kind of stand it on the floor behind a couch and just kind of like, just so it's out of the way. Have you shown honor to that painting, to that beautiful work of art in the way that you've treated it? Absolutely not. How do you honor a beautiful work of art? You honor it by treating it with care. You honor it by making sure that from art hall to home, it has been well protected and, and, and cared for well. You honor it by encasing it in a sturdy, beautiful frame that, that, that brings out the beauty of the art. You honor that art by hanging it in a prominent place. I want this thing on the biggest wall of my house, on a room where people are all the time so that it can be seen right? And enjoyed by everyone who enters. You, you remove distractions from around it. I don't want a lot of clutter or other things hanging around it. I want nothing on this wall except for this beautiful painting because I want it to be seen. 
and treasured by all who enter. That's the way that a Christian husband honors his wife. Prop her up. Think about the frame of the painting. The frame is not the point. But the frame draws attention to the painting. How can you prop up your wife? How can you see what she's good at, what she's passionate about, and fan that flame and, and, and build on that, encourage that? Put her in a prominent place, right? Wives aren't for hiding out. Like, oh yeah, she stays in the kitchen and does her thing. Don't worry about her. I have important work to do. That is not how you honor her. You honor her by challenging and, and growing and seeking to see her blossom into uh, into fruit and, 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 and glory in the things that she puts her hand to. You want her beauty to be seen and enjoyed by all who have an audience to her life and to your family. And of course, I'm not talking about just mere external beauty here. Like, here's my trophy wife. Can you believe I snagged this amazing thing? No, I'm talking about the beauty of a godly woman who is growing in a relationship with Jesus and growing in the ways that she uses her gifts, and her own strengths for the good of others and for the glory of the Lord, to serve the church, to bless her family. Prop her up. Encourage it. Put her in a prominent place for all to see. That's how a husband ought to honor the glory of his wife. Never belittling, never condescending, never demeaning, always admiring, esteeming, revering. There's, there's a reverence that we should hold for our wives. Let me, let me make one simple application here. Husbands, watch how you talk about your wife. Take painstaking efforts to avoid the pitfalls of jokes and banter that belittle her. You've probably been around conversations with other men where when the, when the topic uh, turns to marriage, that it's just littered with jokes about uh, how my wife spends all my money or my wife is the boss in our house or uh, she's a terrible cook or whatever. Like You've probably heard all manner of jokes like that from husbands who speak demeaning words about their wives. Let me just say this. You are called to honor your wife. Don't fall into those pit traps. Take care that when you speak about your wife to anyone, what you say is honoring. What you say esteems her. The people around you should have the sense, this guy really loves his wife. This guy really thinks highly of his wife. That is the sense that people should have just from speaking with you about your wife and your marriage. Let me say a word here to unmarried men. If you're watching this this morning and you're like, well, I don't have a wife. Maybe I'd like to have a wife someday, but I don't right now. Here's my advice to you. Start practicing. Start honoring women now. Treat them with respect, with dignity, with care. If you treat women badly now, or think of them in degrading terms now, or objectify them for your own personal gratification now, you won't suddenly start thinking of a woman rightly and treating her with honor uh, when you get married. It isn't going to automatically happen. Start training your mind and your mouth and your heart in this season of singleness, if that's where you are, to rightly value and cherish women as fellow heirs of the universe. That is what God has in store for his 
daughters. Husbands, honor your wife's weakness and honor your wife's glory. The passage ends with a stern warning. Look at that last phrase. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Live with your wives in an understanding way. How? Showing honor to her in her weakness and in her glory. What might happen if I don't? Your prayers will be hindered. Now there is some mystery here, but it seems that God has hardwired a connection between a husband's honor toward his wife and the effectiveness of his prayer life. God seems to say to husbands to whom he has given the mantle of authority and leadership, he seems to say to Christian husbands, if you don't take good care of my daughter, I will not listen to you. Your prayers will not go past the ceiling, as it were. Your prayers will be hindered if you do not carry out this command. That's a heavy and hard warning, but we should hear it and we should take it seriously. To quote Wayne Grudem, he says, No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor on her. The very health of our souls and our very relationship to God is at stake in some way in how husbands honor their wives, how husbands live in an understanding way with the wives to whom God has blessed, with, with whom God has blessed them. Well, all of this, the, 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 the both sides of the coin, verses one through six in his instructions to wives and verse seven in his instructions to husbands. All of this creates something of a gospel parable. Husbands are to love and lead their wives according to knowledge. That is by showing their wives honor because of their comparative weakness and because of their eternal glory as heirs of the universe. Wives are to be subject to their own husbands out of their fear of God, right? For the sake of Christ, for his honor and glory, wives are to gladly submit themselves to the loving leadership of their husbands, who in turn are to exercise such patience, care, and self-sacrifice in their roles as leaders that the blossom of Christian virtue and godly character would be continuously growing until it comes to full flower in the lives of Christian men and women. And all of this is a parable. It tells us another story. It, Christian marriage is a picture that God gives to the world of another husband. And the mission of self-giving love that he undertook in order to win and redeem his love from the clutches of death and destruction. Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy and without blemish. That is what Christ has done for his church. And that is the manner that he calls husbands to love their wives. Because it all points us to him. There's a song that says of Jesus that he is the groom who gave his life to love his bride. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. In his death on the cross, he took our sin upon himself that he might cleanse us from unrighteousness, forgive us our offense against our creator and restore us to right relationship with him so that he might sanctify us, wash us, make us clean, make us pure for his sake. Have you turned to Jesus Christ in faith? Have you recognized your own sin and your own need for a Savior? Have you turned your heart toward Jesus Christ, recognizing his sinless life, his death on the cross in your place, and his resurrection from the dead as the only means of provision, the only forgiveness of sins, and the only pathway to a restored relationship with God? If you haven't, it's not too late. If you're within the sound of my voice, you're watching this stream now, or even if you're watching it later and you hear these words, it is not too late for you to turn your heart to Jesus Christ in faith. Admit your sin to him and call on him in faith to save you. And the Bible says that he will. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9. So if you haven't done that, take advantage of that opportunity right now that God in his grace is extending. Trust Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Wherever you find yourself on your, your journey, if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you're a husband and you're grappling with what it means to lead and love your wife well, if you're a wife and you're trying to figure out what it means to live under the leadership of your husband faithfully, if you're not married and you're not sure whether you will be or maybe you want to be or what's in your future and you're trying to figure out how all of this fits, in every case, for every one of us, look to Jesus Christ, put your trust in him, and believe that what he says is true. And we can find in his word a true and lasting guide to lead us through this life and all the way to the shore of glory by his grace. Let me pray.